Welcome to another episode of Deciphering Doctrine on the Air Force Doctrine Podcast. My name is Nicholas Underwood. I had the unique opportunity to explore the operational level of war and large-scale combat operations with LeMay Center's own Dr. Dan Bookham Jordan. We discussed the linkages between tactical, operational, and strategic levels of war, and the enormous difference between counterinsurgency operations of the past and large-scale combat operations of the future. Dr. Jordan is a retired Air Force Colonel and fighter pilot. His experience includes serving as the Command Director for NORAD and Assistant Professor at the U.S. Army's Command and Staff College and the Baltic Defense College in Estonia. Please join us. All right, Bookham, back with us again. Really uh, engaging target of opportunity for the audience. Bookham, who works with us at the Doctrine Center, took us down for a staff ride on the Battle of Mobile. I got to ride with him on the way back. He's one of our experts on joint doctrine at the LeMay Center, working on everything from joint targeting, close air support, doing a lot of great work up there, did a lot of work on the joint doctrine note on competing. And so we thought we'd get you here, talk some contextual elements. And so today the focus is about operational thinking, operational level war, operational doctrine. So a lot of questions I want to get into, but first let me say thanks for being here. Thanks for driving and educating us at the same time. Happy happy to be here. This is going to be a lot of fun. All right. So let's start with, at the LeMay Center, we do operational doctrine. Everybody discusses the levels of warfare, strategic, operational, tactical. What is the operational level of war? Why is that different? Is it a hard line between operational tactic, strategy? What is it? That's a really good question. To be honest, after having taught operational art and joint planning in five different countries, I will say there's very little agreement about what is or is not at the quote-unquote operational level of war. Our joint doctrine and NATO doctrine basically tries to do it in a in graphic form by describing, hey, there's a strategic level of war, which is the level of alliances and national governments. And then there's uh, operational level of war in which campaigns, major operations are conducted. And then there's the tactical level of war. And many of my students have had tremendous difficulty trying to understand it. My way of conceptualizing it and the way I teach it is for the students and audience to consider what is strategy and strategic level of war and what is tactics and the tactical level of war And if you know what those are, then you can discern and conclude what is, quote unquote, the operational level. Strategic level, we definitely want to think about strategic objectives, national objectives. Maybe the case study on national objectives might be the agreement between the allies in World War II about how they were going to handle Japan and Germany. And out of that agreement came the demand, if you will, the objective that says we're looking for the unconditional surrender of the empires of Japan and Germany. Those would be a strategic objective. Tactics, on the other hand, we're talking about the level of not just small battles, that's kind of the way the doctrine reads, but we're talking about the level, what I call the point of the sword. The tactical level of war is the point of the sword. So. If I'm a company commander of Marines or a company commander of infantry, I'm at the pointy end of the sword. But so is a fighter pilot, a bomber pilot, or the captain of an Aegis-class cruiser. 
we're all at the tactical level of war because we are pushing the buttons, planning the weapons deliveries, understanding the effects, etc. So if the tactical level of war is where we're throwing the weapons out, and the strategic level of war is where we decide the, the grand strategy and the grand objectives, then the operational level of war is the connection between the two. That is to say, an operational commander takes strategic objectives and converts them into objectives and operations that a tactical commander can be successful at. So it's the operational commander's goal is to make sure that the tactical fight is won, whether that's arranging operations in a large scale or arranging operations in a very small scale. That's the operational level of war because that is the commander and the staff that are trying to arrange these operations in such a way that any tactical commander, fighter pilot, ship commander, infantry commander, whatever, knows and understands what their job is, and they know that the operational commander is providing them with the resources to win. Yeah, absolutely. We just got back from the staff tour on the battle for Mobile. Didn't actually end in a battle itself for Mobile, but it was a large operation. I think we could correctly say it was the Mobile operation. And what's interesting and really helped to clarify operation to me versus tactics is the operation for Mobile began with a naval battle. It began with cooperative operations over Fort Morgan, followed by Spanish Fort. We have these other battles that are all taking place for this operational objective, which is Mobile. Is that a good way to think that, of That's it? a very good way to say it. Joint Doctrine talks about the linkage of operations and battles and engagements in which an operation has sequence of battles or multiple battles at the same time. Mm -hmm. And a battle is multiple engagements in sequence or at the same time. And the big leap that we make from thinking about, wow, this is in the context of the operating environment of the Civil War and Mobile Bay environment during 1864 and 1865. And you take that and translate it into what we consider or think about today in modern doctrine of a peer fight. It is the operational commander's job to sequence these operations, battles, and engagements in such a way as to move forward toward the strategic objective. Absolutely. So the operational objectives achieve strategic objectives, tactical objectives add up to achieve the operational objective. Exactly right. Okay. They're, all, they're all linked. It's an incredibly important concept in doctrine and in our joint planning syllabi that all of these operations, uh, battles, engagements are linked to a common objective, which would be the strategic objective. And if by chance we're out there doing something that is not linked to a strategic or an operational objective, then we ought to be standing up and saying, okay, why are we doing this? We're risking lives. We're risking the blood and treasure of ourselves and our allies if they're not linked to a specific objective that makes sense and has been designated by the strategic leadership. There is a discourse out there right now that talks about there is no operational level of war. And in fact, Clausewitz is often quoted, never read, strategy is the sum of the battles. And I've always been bewildered by that statement, mostly because I think operations were much more limited at that particular time. And so in a lot of ways, it, operations is the sum of the battles, depending on the objective itself. 
So everything becomes the sum of everything else, I guess is a better way to say it. Is the battles can sum up to the operations, the operations can sum up to the strategy for the achievement of the strategic objectives. That's a very interesting point of view. I would want to question it, if you don't mind, in, no, in the sense of if my strategic objectives are paramount, then looking at a series of tactical actions, engagements, and battles, and then capturing it and saying these are the sum of the strategy, that implies that the tactical level of war is driving what's going on. And, and uh, that I would object to very much. Hmm. Uh, I, don't, I don't want my platoon commanders out there in, well, in today we talk about the competition continuum. I would not want platoon commander or ship commander making decisions in competition, that is to say in a state of peace, that might lead to war. And therefore, what always has to happen is the strategy drives everything. The strategy may be wrong. We may have to go back to school and figure out how to adjust if we're not being successful. Got it. And that's where you get into the joint planning world of branches and sequels and what are you going to do if something different happens, that kind of stuff. I appreciate that clarification. And what I think is interesting there is if we can build off of that, the tactics should not drive and create the strategy. The strategy should drive the tactics, I think, summarizes what you're saying. Yes, exactly right. And so the interesting part about that is in today's world, we saw this with things like Abu Ghraib and a variety of other social media uh, yep. blunders, is tactical level decisions can have strategic level effects. Absolutely. Utilizing that thought, okay. then how about we talk about who needs to be thinking at what level. I just finished reading the first couple chapters of John Warden's air campaign, and he talks about who thinks at what level. But as we identified on this staff ride, if a commander doesn't consider the levels above and below them, meaning thinking an operational commander should also be thinking of strategic implications and tactical implications for their plan, and tactical should consider operational and perhaps even some strategic. So who thinks at what level and can you ever ignore any of them? The answer is no, absolutely not. Can't ignore any of it. Now I would qualify discussions about the tactical level of war in terms of understanding. It's absolutely important that our tactical commanders understand why they're in this battle or approaching battle. And that means they have to understand the operational objectives. That leads to a continuity and linkage that we already talked about, but it also has a touch point in terms of combat leadership and the ability to express to your soldiers, sailors, airmen, and guardians what and why you are in this conflict and what your purpose is. That, that is incredibly important. On the other hand, I don't need necessarily a tactical commander to understand more than what's happening left, right, in the front, in the center, behind or in front of him or her. I don't need that to happen. I need them to understand their mission and what the relationship is between their unit and the units to the left, right, front, behind. I do, however, need an operational commander to be not only understand what they're trying to do, but also understand what the tactics of the various, what I call the tools in the kit bag, how those tools are being employed. So, for example, I used to be a fighter squadron commander. I didn't know how to fix an engine. 
I knew how to fly the airplane, of course. But I did know that if the engine is broken, certain things need to happen in sequence until it's ready to fly again. The same thing I would expect out of an operational commander, and that is I'm arranging operations that may cross domains, maritime, land, air, and I need to understand how those tactical commanders are going to employ their forces. By the way, I can throw in space and cyber at the same time and think of it that way. I need to understand how they fight and what the implication is if they are unsuccessful. If I don't understand that and I am surprised by a loss in one domain or another that has an effect across all domains, we are in big trouble. So consequently, I expect my operational commanders to have enough knowledge about the tactical level of war to be able to arrange engagements, battles, operations, and campaigns. And if they can't do that, we need to find another commander. I want to take that and talk about mission command. Okay. Because that, that really is, we talk about the shared understanding, the mutual trust. These are become buzzwords in a lot of sense. You know, the, the principles, they have definite value and meaning. When we talk about shared understanding inside of mission command, this is often what we're talking about, is understanding those left and right pieces at your appropriate level. Left, right, up, down pieces at your appropriate level. Right. And the Army, uh, specifically looking up, inside of Mission Command has changed their orders process in the upcoming FM50 to state that orders should include commander's intent at least two levels up. Mm -hmm. That's all the way from tactical to the operational level. And so I think that as we move into a world of more contested communications, more dynamic operations, it's a good idea to know the bigger picture. It will be an absolute necessity because things will change and you will have to react. You're buying yourself maneuver room to still see the objective if you understand what's going on. I think that's right on the money. And I agree with it completely. The idea of understanding what's going on around me. The, the issue that has to be addressed and understood, and this is where I appeal to the staff colleges and the war colleges and all the joint training planning courses that are out there is this idea that can I expect a infantry lieutenant to understand what's going to happen in the air war above him or her? No, of course not. But I do expect that flag officer or that general officer to understand the implication of losing an air battle and what the implication of that is on my surface forces or my surface fleet, if you will, for a maritime force or my ground forces, wherever they might be. And regardless of whether there's an understanding from a particular domain or not, doesn't excuse the operational commander from not knowing and not, not understanding and not communicating their intent through those orders. In that regard, I really appreciate what the new FM50 is doing but their army intent in terms of writing and a commander's intent in the orders process, it's been the same for the last 50 years. Yeah. They're just extending it and expanding it. And I think it's going to have great applicability in the joint all domain concept that we're trying to develop in the American Armed Forces. At the LeMay Center right now, we're trying to work on that, that same piece. We're trying to learn from them as much as we can. Obviously, the airman's perspective will have some nuanced changes, but absolutely. What you just talked about, that idea of thinking cross domains and impacts. My next question, you may have already answered, but I'll give you a chance to elaborate, is simply, what is operational thinking? Mm. And you've kind of answered this, but I, I think it's worth 
stating kind of again, what is operational thinking? Because we're asking the FGO level here now and even the senior NCO level to include operational thinking as airmen. So what is it? Well, everybody, right now, you couldn't put a definition to it. It's just a term out there that people are beginning to think about. My particular perspective, based on teaching in five different countries, joint operations, and being a professor of strategy and operational planning, is the idea of operational thinking is wrapped around the whole term of operational art. If I can think about operational art and understand the elements of it and conceive of the art of joint operations, not the planning part, not the science of it, if you will, but the art of it, and if I understand that, then I am well on the way to accomplishing operational thinking. The challenge is getting the field grade officers and the senior NCOs of whatever service, but in particular in the Air Force, in our particular case, of, of getting them to think that way. What I'm discovering is there are specialties in the services that think they have solved a problem, whatever that might be, information, air control, command and control, those kinds of things. Nobody is able to stand back and look at it from a meta point of view and go, if we proceed down this path, what will happen? Because the bright and shiny young staff officers that come up, and senior NCOs that come up with these ideas, they are blessing us with their ideas. They're fantastic ideas, but they have to be measured against what could possibly happen if we don't do something or if we do this or whatever it might be. That's partly my fear is that I'm seeing the great ideas hit the road out here, both in doctrine and planning and concepts out of the armed forces. And we've got the latest great idea, but we don't have anybody that stands up and say, yes, but. So that's my concern. And eventually I hope it'll work itself out. But we are certainly at a juxtaposition. We're at a, a meeting point in this new day and age, uh, the operating environment, the strategic operating environment, with all the uh, discussion about peer com competition and peer competitors is can be very scary if you think about what are the capabilities that the competitors or the adversaries might have and match it against what we have. To think operational then, to give a definition, it's basically thinking across all the domains and all the capabilities and how these pieces all come together to achieve an objective. And then how does the whole system react when you introduce something unexpected or unplanned for? Or, and you could plan for these, I mean, it's branches and sequels, as you said, but understanding the movement of the tactics as a system and how those capabilities all play together seems to be operational thinking. I think you're right on, Badger. It's but the key that you mentioned is understanding capabilities. I don't need you to build that jet engine, but I need to know when it's broken and how I can fix it. I don't need to know how to do amphibious warfare, but I need to know the capabilities that allow me to do amphibious warfare or a counter air campaign or a, a land campaign or whatever it might be. And regardless of the service of the operational commander, Excellent. I want to take this kind of the next logical steps. We've kind of already started talking cross domain. The other thing I think we would have to, to say is that we gave this very general idea of operations, the operational level, operational thinking. I have also observed 
operational thinking and how the system moves and how things play together, how, how the capabilities work are all very context dependent. And by context, I mean the environment, mm-hmm. the character of warfare, which we've talked about on other podcasts, how all of those are shaping and moving. So the complexity of an operation in the Civil War is going to be much different than the complexity of an operation now in various ways. So not necessarily being more or less complex, just the problems and the, system, the way the system moves is differently. So I wanted to talk a little bit about maybe the context, the operational context of the past, okay. meaning the last 20 years in this okay. counterinsurgency fight, and then the future. I think the term that I've heard you use is large-scale combat operations. So the question then is, what is large-scale combat operations, and how is this different from maybe the last 20 years? Well, when we talk about the last 20 years, we're, I think we're referring to the war on terror and, and conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan and, yes. and all the operations that were involved there. I had a very interesting interaction with a young staff officer a few years ago who was talking to me about operations at scale. That was his phrase, his terminology. So I, not knowing what he meant, I asked him, what did you mean by at scale? And he, his answer was Afghanistan times 10. Now, this guy's outstanding officer and very competent. So I took it on its face and recognized that what he was trying to do was take the experiences that he had in Afghanistan, and which were special operations oriented, and then put a factor against it to say it'll be more complex. Well, that's true. But at the same time, I've got an entire community of targeteers in the Department of Defense who are saying the next conflict is going to be a conflict that in which we're going to have to address deliberate and dynamic targets between 500 and 1,000 a day. Wow. Now, that's, that's a different scale completely. So what, what ends up happening is I took his explanation and understood it, and then I, but I started noticing that other staff officers and other agencies were talking in terms of this times 10 kind of thing, and including isolated agencies within the Air Force. But it occurred to me that what was happening was we are at the beginning of fighting the last war, which everybody doesn't want to do. Nobody wants to do that. They all know it's a bad thing. The uh, indicators that we're thinking that way is Afghanistan times 10. We've completely forgotten the history of the American Armed Forces from 1945 to 1989. We haven't studied it. Why? Because it was the Cold War and we didn't have a hot war and therefore it doesn't qualify as military history. But the fact of the matter was we had large units of allies and uh, Warsaw Pact uh, armies and air forces and navies positioned against each other just waiting for the first shot. The force ratios between the two sides were unbelievably difficult. The allies were basically at a disadvantage four to one. Airplanes uh, at times at different theaters, we were outnumbered 10 to one. We never had to execute under those conditions, but the thinking back then was very different than our thinking in the last 20 years. And this is what concerns me. If I'm going to have a conflict that is bigger than Afghanistan times 10, inevitably I'm going to end up with either large set piece battles, which a lot of people disagree with, by the way, 
or a whole series of minor engagements that total to a large set piece battle. So I offer, by comparison, our perceptions of what might have happened or what is happening in the Ukraine and compare that to what is happening in Israel today. Nobody would say, well, you don't have two armored forces fighting each other in either of those operating environments. That's a true statement. But the scale of operations and the scale of planning necessary to accomplish the strategic objectives on both sides, Ukraine and Russia and Israel and Hamas, is very, very difficult to ignore and is an example of an expanding operating environment in which the scale of conflict is getting bigger and bigger. Absolutely. And we're still dealing with two significantly overmatched forces. Russia is significantly overmatched on Ukraine, although due to some decision-making and withholding, I think, on Russia Mm -hmm. for obvious escalation reasons, there's not, it's almost not moving quite as quickly as they would like. Right. In Israel, we're seeing a sniffing overmatch and to the point where it's taken global attention. I don't want to get too much into that, but whereas if the U.S. finds itself embroiled in the type of conflict that is been preparing for, we're not looking at significant overmatch. I would imagine that what we're talking about here is hugely important. Uh, to, to really get into that bigger point, yep. I want to kind of look through the joint functions and maybe we can do some contrast and compare. Okay. And so let's start with fires. Okay. So um, being a soft guy inside of AFSOC, over the last 20 years of counterinsurgency, basically here's what fires kind of look like. You throw a bunch of ISR birds up, you gather a bunch of intel, you find your targets hiding out in fields or whatever you have to do, and you either send in a direct action team in order to go get the target, or you call in an airstrike, which is controlled from a central location in a jock, and there's a an army JTAC or perhaps a tag P there mm-hmm. that gives you a nine line, you attack it, and these kind of happen sequentially. Each jock is controlling one or two strikes at a time, and maybe across the AOR, there's a dozen of these jocks. That was what I considered fires, at least from the air perspective, for the last 20 years to this counterinsurgency. Now, fire is in a large-scale combat operation. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more going on. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, you've got all the artillery units in a combat unit. You've got all the organizations that go with that, the fire control units, etc. So however many tubes and or rockets or missiles you want to throw at the enemy, you have the ability or the necessity to sort through that. That's a very good point. But in addition, you have, especially in the Indo-PACOM AOR, you've got the ability to throw maritime fires at the problem. So now I've just complicated the issue. Then, of course, you've got the air domain and the ability to provide either close air support next to friendly units that are in close contact with the enemy or in an air interdiction or offensive counter air roll where they are going beyond the fire support coordination line. When the targeteers think about 500 to 1,000 targets a day, that's what I think about in terms of the beginning of OIF, the beginning of Desert Storm. A strategic uh, attack. A strategic, strategic attack. I'm going against strategic targets, depending on the situation, of course. Mm-hmm. Those targets are being hit in order to accomplish a different a objective of some sort. So maybe I'm knocking out national command and control, but if I'm also on the 
defense at, uh, in the land domain, now I'm also trying to differentiate my fires so that I'm supporting the ground forces in the defense. That's probably the biggest challenge that operational commanders have in terms of apportioning and allocating fires across all the domains. If you're an army commander, a tactical commander, you want everything to support you. Got it. I got it. I do understand that. Been there. But on the other side of it is if I can control the strategic uh, command and control decision making processes and I can slow down what the enemy, how the enemy is perceiving its operational planning and executing its operational planning, I've got a case for fires going in a different direction. So there's, those are the, that's the science of it. The art of it is the decision-making about how that should be done. Right now, Bookham's opinion, for what it's worth, it really depends on who's the Joint Force Commander as to how that apportionment is going to occur, whether you're a land or a naval commander. And unfortunately, that bias is going to fly in the face of what those decisions are. Hey, I'm a ground commander. I want everything to go for the ground support. Okay, got it. But on the other hand, what I would like to be able to see is a joint force commander that looks at it from a, a meta point of view and understands the relationship between fires and movement and maneuver and how that fits into trying to achieve a operational objective. This sounds a lot like what we were just talking about with operational thinking. Exactly All right. All the capabilities together, the system moving exactly together. Exactly right. Exactly the right. The best way to achieve an objective. Yep. yep. Again, coming from my, my recent experience with a CAD, I'm going to combine movement and maneuver and intelligence function. The Army's recently published their information operations doctrine. We have ours. We published as well, DP-313. Okay. One of the phrases they were using that is really shaping the way they think about operations are the phrase you are always in contact and so if i take that idea basically meaning we can no longer just assume as opposed to the last 20 years you know we could forward stage we're out of contact with the enemy we can reduce their ability to see us the gulf war the first thing we did was blind the enemy mm-hmm. The assumption going in now, at least from those doctrine writers' perspective, was that you're going to always be in contact. It's going to be difficult to hide. And so I start to wonder the enemy's ability to to see you now. Mm -hmm. How does that change large-scale combat operations? How does that change your movement and maneuver versus what we see? That's a very difficult question. We may not be able to talk about it here. Yeah. Uh, I, I do like the idea... The operational artist, the person who is trying to do operational thinking, if you will, has a opportunity to mix and match different domains that we're operating in, space, etc. cetera. Uh, but also, don't forget, electronic magnetic spectrum type operations those, and the information world. I think an operational commander can accomplish what you just described. But it has to be under the right conditions. And now we're talking about that linkage of one engagement to another battle, to another operation, and how the domains are interactive in forming and executing that type of operation. One of the things that I also work on, you mentioned it earlier, is 
the uh, Department of Defense's doctrine on joint targeting. And one of the objectives that I was uh, given to work on was how do we synchronize lethal and non-lethal effects? Or if you want to put it a different way, kinetic and non-kinetic weapons, depending on your point of view. And I would just offer the days of not knowing what a non-lethal effect might be and how it's accomplished is uh, unacceptable. If you don't understand how information, et cetera, has an effect on your operations, we're in big trouble. It has to be coordinated and synchronized, and we have to have experts that know and understand how to do that. My difficult question aside, it does seem that that's a very valid point. In large-scale combat operations, the idea of this synchronization and understanding how the system moves and interacts together what we've kind of loosely defined as operational thinking here is that much more paramount because of the scale and the effect on the intelligence function. Absolutely right. I see what you mean. No, completely agree with you. And the irony of it is the supported commander, the joint force commander of an operation may be looking for support from places outside of his area of operations. Right. And that now we're talking worldwide support and worldwide, in, in some cases, we'll be talking worldwide fires to create effects that allow the commander to achieve whatever that objective is. So you're exactly right. How do we maneuver large scale units across the water, across the sky, across land? It's a, a difficult challenge. All right, so kind of to summarize, and we've gone a little bit through the functions, We'll ask the question again. We can't understand what large-scale combat operations is. Is this much larger? Can you maybe say what it's not? Does that help a little bit? Sure. Yeah. It's not Afghanistan times 10. <laughs> maybe the next step to thinking about it is, so, Bookham, what could it be, especially if, as you look out on the operational environments, wherever they might be in the world? And my best conclusion so far is that they are very short, violent conflicts, battles and engagements in limited in space and time that have large effects across the entire operating area or the operation environment and cause at times operational effects but may have large strategic effect. In other words, now we've got national authorities making decisions based on the results of a particular engagement or a battle. Wow. These things happened and were discussed in World War II. Maybe the best way is to think about that is when Guadalcanal was going on in the campaign around Guadalcanal, it was an isolated event in the environment of World War II and had the attention of President Roosevelt and Admiral King, but it quickly got overcome by other operations and the battles that became more important. If I take that as an example, I think the future will be these very violent engagements that have strategic impact and may or may not require changes. But I hesitate to say that every battle and engagement is going to require the national command authorities to be involved. So we'll see what happens certainly something to ponder. The short, violent, long-reaching effects. Yep. I don't know if I'd ever thought of it that way. Oh, yeah. What I'd like to do is kind of bring it 
to a close here. Okay. You, you've taught it the operational level, the doctrine level now for quite a long time, uh, lived it and both taught at it. You talked a little bit about this, but what kind of advice do you have? Let's focus strictly on the FGOs and the senior NCOs now, the, what has been called the iron majors or the yep. iron lieutenant yep. colonels, yep. the iron senior master sergeants that are they're out there, they're in these staffs and they're making these plans and they're advising their commanders as they're going through their PME or they're doing their own self-study, what are your words for them? That's a great question. My answer comes from my heart as opposed to my brain. When I taught seminars at Fort Leavenworth and at the Baltic Defense College, we had officers from all the services with all kinds of different experience, some with combat experience, some not. What always surprised me was at the Army Staff College when an Army officer objected to what a airman or a, or a sailor might say about how they were going to operate in their domains. It's not like, oh, I get that. I'm going to go to school on it. It was, no, no, no. We'll never have to deal with that. So I want you to focus on supporting me in my unit or at the tactical level. And I've, I have seen that time and time again over the course of my career, both teaching, working, teaching Army staff rides at Fort Leavenworth, etc. So I would offer to every field grade officer, especially those that have the opportunity to do the professional military education at the 04 level or at the senior service school level, is to walk in with an open mind understand the joint process, but the most important thing any of you can take away is what are the capabilities of the people and forces that are gonna help me. And if, if you walk away and all you're still service oriented and without understanding the interaction of space and cyber and, and all the domains and, and bring them together, if you walk away, then you have not only failed yourself professionally, but I think you failed your country. So. That's pretty strong words on my part at the end of this uh, particular podcast, but it comes from the heart. That's going to do it for this week's podcast. The show is recorded, edited, and produced by LeMay Center's Doctrine Outreach Section. Special thanks to Dr. Jordan, the LeMay Center, and Air University. As always, the views expressed by our guests and hosts are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Air University, the Air Force, or any government agency. I'm Nicholas Underwood. We will see you next time.